Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Seems somewhat harsh words, particularly since it's someone just looking to go back and and say farewell at home. But it seems that the heart of what Jesus is saying is that you can't serve two masters. You can't both follow him and not follow him. On another occasion when he talked about the serving of two masters, he said, if you try to do that, you love one and hate the other. Or vice versa in that, but you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to give yourself wholly to the kingdom of God. He says, one who looks back is not fit for the kingdom. I don't know whether that strikes you with the echo as it does me of Genesis 19. If it doesn't immediately come to mind what that section is about, it's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Lot and his family are being led out, the angel says, you've got to hurry and don't look back, don't look behind you, but just press on. And we're told that when it came to that last moment, his wife did look back and was turned into the pillar of salt. And we could discuss some other time what's going on within that story and what's happening, but But key to her looking back is that it's not just that she glanced over her shoulder and was struck down. The sense of the of the verb in the Hebrew at that point is that her her heart was drawn back. She was longing back for the things that she knew there and was drawn back to that place. And you think of the state of Sodom. We're not told whence came Lot's wife. There's good reason to believe that he met her there someone who has been raised in Sodom, a place that we understand to be irredeemably wicked, so thoroughly blackened that we can't find, the Lord can't find, Abraham can't find ten righteous people. And that's including what there might be in Lot and his family. And so the destruction comes. And I think about St. Paul writing to the Ephesians, where likewise he's calling people of of where they've been, and warning them. You've come out of that pagan world. Don't go back there. Don't don't think about it. Don't talk about the things that they talk about. Don't be drawn back. And he says, once you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And I've always been struck by that phrase, once you were darkness. Not just you were in the darkness, not just... Uh, you had shadows around you, but it infected everything about you. The way that you think, the way that, the way that you thought, the way that you reasoned, the way that you looked at the world, what your priorities were. Don't go back there. Don't dabble with that. Because you so easily got drawn back into those things. Don't look back. The one who looks back is mixing the priorities. We've probably all noticed at some time that if we get distracted, particularly if driving, you know, there's that awful accident off to the side and we're paying attention, that the car tends to move in that direction and you find yourself suddenly bumping along the, the, the gravel or whatever. You've got to watch that because you tend to go where your focus is. 
It guides you. The looking back, if we're moving up in the Lord's heavenly calling, to look back means that we start to descend again. We start to move away from His things. Jesus says the first priority must be the kingdom of God. The heart must be fixed upon that end, that goal. Otherwise, they're not fit. We're not fit for the kingdom. Come back often to the story of of Joshua, who leads the people into the land after Moses. You remember the the end of his, his book, when we get the people more or less in the land, They haven't done everything they were supposed to do. Their disobedience is going to cause them all kinds of problems. But there's at least a temporary respite. Things have kind of settled down. And Joshua says to them, now you're where the Lord promised he would lead you. You've got some rest from your enemies. You need to decide now how you're going on from here. You need to choose whom you will follow. Will it be the Lord? Will it be the gods your fathers followed back in Egypt or along the way? Will it be the gods of the Amorites who were in the land? And they say, well, of course we'll follow the Lord. He brought us here. And Joshua says, you can't. You can't do it. And they're a little taken aback. Well, what do you mean? But he says, you can't do this unless you really mean it. You can't start in this direction in a half-hearted way. You can't add the things of the Lord onto your lives, that's got to be the focus. You have to give yourself to His law. If you come under His law and the benefits, you also come under the penalties of the law. He says He won't treat you lightly if having said that you're going to follow Him, you turn away and drift away. But they say we're determined. And Joshua says, okay, Get rid of the idols that are in your midst. Cleanse, purge, purge yourselves and give yourselves wholly to the Lord. You've got to get focused. You can't be looking back now. You need to move on. Well, we know it didn't go really well in the generations that followed. They didn't really take to heart what he was talking about. Jesus says that the one who turns back is not fit for the kingdom. The language there, the, the word that he is used, euthetos, is, um, it's literally you're not well placed for moving forward in the kingdom. You're not moving in the right direction. You're not going to flourish. You think about the parable of the sower and the seeds where you get seeds that fall in ground that receives the seed and there's a bit of soil, but there are the thorns or there's the shallow soil. And things might grow up, but they don't bear fruit. They don't flourish. They don't bear lasting fruits. Well, those who are not focused on the things of the kingdom are not going to flourish in the kingdom. He talks about a need to have a profound break with the old ways, the old ways of thinking, the old way of being. St. Paul discusses that sort of thing in talking about the flesh and the spirit. The flesh will be that old inclination, the sinful way from which we've been called, out of which we've been brought in Jesus Christ. Talked about it before, but when you're reading St. Paul, flesh and spirit, 
he's not talking about body set against the soul. He's talking about whether the passions rule the body, rule the person, rule the will, or whether they're governed by the spirit. And the things that incline to the flesh are the first. And the things of the spirit, properly the small s spirit and the capital S spirit. So the human spirit governing the things of the body, directing the passions, but that direction should be under the Holy Spirit. So we're directed to God's ends. The things of the flesh are focused on the things of this world, where the ends in this world are the highest good and all that really matters. And invariably, they're ultimately focused on on the self and the self-centeredness. You know, what's in it for me? If I'm going to give to you, if I'm going to give love to you, I'm looking for what I get in return. It's really about me. It's not about you. Set against the selfless love of the gospel, that agape love that has the heart for the beloved, that lays down its life for the beloved. The language in our translation is of the desires of the flesh. But the word that's there is more often understood as being lust in the sense of inordinate desire, self-centered desires. And again, with that idea that, that the ends are in this world, we need to be reminded again that when we talk about the heavenly ends, we're not talking about just the reward someday in heaven. Um, there's one of those old worker songs that comes out of Woody Guthrie that sings with the, about the pie in the sky when you die by and by. He did uh, mimicry, of, mockery of, of some of the old evangelical hymns at times like that. But we're not talking about just ends in the life to come, but we're talking about God's good ends for here and now. The desires that he has given us are two ends in this world even that would fulfill God's will here. And so you think about something like even the desire for food. The intention of eating is that the body would be fueled, would be strengthened, would be enabled to do the things that we're given to do. And if you're eating to that end, then enjoying your food is not a contradictory thing. Um, You shouldn't have to just eat the bare minimum of of what would sustain you for the moment, you can have food that you enjoy eating. But it's to the end of refueling the body, not simply the indulgence. The more fleshly end would be that which just fills the belly, tries to quell the hunger, and so often you find yourself stuffing yourself with with junk food. Maybe the gluttonous ends that come of that often the food that makes us feel better when we're feeling down and and need some encouragement. Uh, Many of us know what it can be to eat something nice when you're feeling lousy that gives you a bit of a boost. But properly, there's an end to this, a good and godly end in this world that if we're following that way of the Spirit, we can move towards. The more common one that we think about is the sexual desire which does have a good and godly end. It's to draw husband and wife together in the one flesh union. There's to be the formation of the family, to be that context in which the children are raised. 
the offspring or the good fruit of that sexual union of husband and wife. There's a context. When we move outside of that, we move in that direction of the flesh and it actually moves us away from the things of God. We might well understand that this then is the looking back. Looking back to the the fallen way of seeing things, to the self-centered way. That's what comes out of the garden. Instead of being focused on God's kingdom and the Lord, who is God, we become, as the devil promised, our own gods. We step into God's place. And the end is that it leads us away from life. What was it for Lot's wife? That was not just something for which she would be punished, but by which she would die. Of course, we might say that what Jesus is calling them not to look back to is their good things. When he calls those disciples to follow him and one is saying, well, let me go back and bury my father. It seems a good thing, although many commentators will say that we're not talking about a father who has died and the body is lying there waiting for burial, but much more likely one who is saying, well, once my father has passed the property on to me once he comes to the end of his life. Then I'll be free to do what I want. And then I'll come and follow you. And how often we put things off of of the Lord's kingdom, of the Lord's call, waiting for the things in our lives to be right, rather than listening to his call. The other who wants to go back to his family, well again, it can be a good thing to say goodbye So Elisha wanted to go home as well when Elijah called him. But there's some sense again that it often has to do with us being caught up in the old ways. There'll be time. There will be time to go and see the family after we get our hearts set on Jesus. And this is one of the things we've also talked about before. Elsewhere he has much stronger language. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's in Luke 14. Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's hyperbolic, surely. The one who tells us to love our enemies is not telling us to hate our own families. But he is saying, unless that first priority is right, even the ones whom you love are not loved as they ought to be loved. The first priority, the first point, is the point of worship in our lives, and it sets all the others in place. I've said many times that we have to watch that divided allegiance, that question sometimes of when we're really pressed on making the decision, what is it that that wins the day? You know, when there's a cost to following Jesus, how do we decide whether or not to go? Well, what we decide on the basis of is what comes first. What is the highest priority? And even the beloved members of our families, even the good things in our lives, if we hold them first, 
become idols and come between us and Him. It's not that He does not want us to have our families and to love our families, to love our friends, to love ourselves in a healthy way, but first, for our hearts to be given to Him. And in that context, to learn to love all these things. Now as I say all of that, we might all feel a little bit hopeless in that who doesn't look back, who doesn't get turned back, who doesn't stumble on the way. And I think it's worth noting that where the words of Jesus come up today are in the context of the story about him heading towards the Samaritan village. And you've got James and John, two stalwart disciples, who along the line when the Samaritans refuse him passage through their village, say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And other texts include a phrase, well, a couple of phrases, but one there is, like Elijah did. And they're hearkening back to ways of the great prophet of the Lord of old. Well, we just read of Elijah, where he called down fire from heaven that burned up the enemies who came to attack him, to take him away. That's in Second Kings 1. Jesus rebuked them, we're told. That's all we got, but there is another line in that text, if you're reading the authorized version, where he says, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has come not to destroy life, but to save it, or to save human lives. Well, James and John, you might remember, he called Boanerges, the sons of thunder. On another occasion, they asked about being seated at his right hand and his left. And it led into him talking with the whole group of them and saying, "Um, guys, there's a way of the world and there's a way of the kingdom. In the world, power is a self-centered thing. You use power over others to get them to do what you want. You go that way of vengeance of the fire that might be called down, but not so among you. Rather, the one who wants to be first needs to be, as the least, needs to be the servant of all. And we're reminded again that Jesus ends that not by saying, well, this is what you have to do if you want to be good enough for me. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Don't just hear my words, but watch me. Look at what I do. Look at what I've done for you. And out of that, let that be the way of your lives. Interesting that there's, a, there's an old evangelical preacher and commentator, F.B. Meyer, who had made the observation in looking at that passage that, that James and John are looking back to the old ways, that way of vengeance, and Jesus is saying, you know, that's not the way of the gospel. The only fire that we're to call down is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And then he sort of, I imagine him chuckling as he writes that one of those brothers was still around when the time came and they were back in Samaritan territory and he was among those apostles who called down that fire upon the new disciples there. So you go to Acts 14, uh, sorry, to Acts 8, verse 14. It's that section actually where uh, Philip, the deacon, has gone into Samaria. And you have Simon Magus, the the practitioners of magic, who are turned dramatically to the Lord. They're baptized, 
but then the apostles come and lay hands on them for the, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mention all of that just to make note for us that Jesus is not saying that if you turn back, if you're drawn away, that you're written off, that that's the end of the matter. You've proved yourself unworthy, therefore I leave you behind. He does say that you're not in the way that will flourish in the kingdom. You're not fit for the kingdom. What we need to do, like James and John, like all of the disciples before us, is to repent of our turning away, to get our gaze back on Jesus. You can't both look back and look ahead at him. We can't serve two masters. We need to return to him, to repent and be restored to fill our eyes and our hearts with his word, our bodies and our souls with his sacramental life, and ask him for the very thing he most wants to give us, to purify us and to grant us signalness of vision that we may be made fit followers and learn to really pray. To really pray what we sing so often is that children's Christmas hymn that we all know, Away in a Manger, that ends with the verse, Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask Thee to stay close by me forever, and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in Thy tender care, and fit us for heaven to live with Thee there. Jesus says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But as our gaze, as our hearts have strayed, let's return to Him. Let's truly repent. Let's let him gather us back into that way that is the way of everlasting life, truly fit for the kingdom of God.